The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator, where each week we take a look at three pieces from the magazine with the writers behind them. I'm William Moore, The Spectator's features editor. And I'm Laura Prendergast, The Spectator's executive editor. On the podcast, we'll be asking if anyone can stop Trump, discussing what life after politics looks like for the MPs likely to lose their seats, and debating whether self-publishing is the future. First up, The Spectator's deputy editor, Freddie Gray, takes a look at Donald Trump's second coming in the cover story this week. Freddie says that despite Trump's legal troubles, he is almost certain to receive the Republican nomination. Freddie joins us now alongside Amber Duke, Spectator World's Washington editor, who also writes in the magazine this week about the brides of Trump, the women hoping to receive the nod as Trump's running mate. Freddie, we're speaking just as the Republican primaries are about to get going, and obviously nothing is decided yet. But as you say in your cover piece, we should be preparing for Donald Trump's second coming. What exactly do you mean by that? And and what's it going to look like? I think it will be um, a more right wing presidency. I think that would be that seems to be clear. I mean, what people forget about Donald Trump in 2016 was that he was actually quite a, a liberal in some ways. And that when he got to Washington, he really wanted to make a sort of accommodation with Washington. He wanted to, you know, bring on board establishment type people and so on. The people around Trump still bitter about that because they felt like that was a big mistake. And that when he comes back in in 2024, the kind of Trump revolution will be completed. And so I think that is very much the tenor of what they're saying about it. But if you look at his opponents, they're all calling it a dictatorship. And they're saying that, you know, Trump, the next second Trump administration will be a dictatorship and America's on the brink of dictatorship and so on. Of course, the problem is they said that all in 2016 as well. Hmm. And Amber, I would love to get your thoughts about the Republican primaries, which, of course, are just kicking off now uh, this week. Freddie has actually argued on Spectator TV, our YouTube sister show, I suppose, that Trump basically owns all the mechanisms of the party at this point. So if you're an ambitious Republican and want to get on within the party, then it's not in your interest to speak out against him. Do you agree with that analysis and and how are we seeing that play out as these primaries really get going? Yeah, I think part of the Trump effect actually is that the Republican machine has become a bit more fractured in the sense that things like Congressional Leadership Fund, NRSC, NRCC, and the RNC are sort of operating on their own standards. It was actually one of the downfalls for Republicans in the 2022 midterms was that there wasn't really a cohesive messaging effort among the party apparatus. And I think that's because a lot of these old establishment parts of the party machine want to have some independence from Trump. The RNC is kind of the one exception to that because the RNC chairwoman, Ronna McDaniel, of course, was handpicked by Trump after he won the 2016 election, including that shock upset in Michigan. But I would say the one area where Trump's presence really comes into play for his challengers 
is that Ron and McDaniel, when deciding the debate process and how the RNC should be involved, kind of played it up like she was going to do a fair process. Trump, of course, didn't want them to hold any debates at all, saying that he was the presumptive nominee and he was essentially an incumbent. And Ronna tried to have it both ways. She wanted to placate Trump. So she ended up putting David Bossie, who's a former Trump official in charge of the debate process. And they made the standards for reaching the debate stage pretty honestly high early on. So if you're a challenger to Trump, and um, if you're especially someone who's still trying to fundraise money early on in the race, you had to spend a lot really early just to make the debate stage. And so you saw a lot of these candidates dropping out quite quickly because they were simply hemorrhaging money, just trying to reach those minimum polling standards to get on the debate stage. So technically, it was a fair process in that the RNC hosted the debates, but the uh, process itself was quite difficult for anyone who wasn't Donald Trump. But one of one of the interesting points in your piece, and I suppose sort of the premise for the image, is, is how evangelicals are, are continuing to gravitate around Trump. Why, why do you think that group identifies so strongly with Trump? And, and are there any other groups that are starting to shift towards him? Uh, I mean, there's there's a sort of ongoing shift of minorities towards Trump, which is definitely happening and, and which is which will be a, a very interesting dynamic this year. But I think what's happened on the religious right is fascinating because the religious right is becoming more worldly and more secular and more political. Um, there's quite a lot of research to back this up. And Pew have done some very interesting research, which I mentioned in the piece, which shows that people who identify as Trump fans are identifying as evangelical Christians because they support Donald Trump. So they're not evangelicals who support Trump. They're Trump people who say they're evangelical because they support Trump. And that's a really interesting shift in American society and life. And I think it tells you something about the way the religious right, which is obviously it's very hard to talk about it in such broad brush terms, but the religious right has become less pious. Um, And it's extraordinary to think uh, back to 2016 when in Iowa... Uh, when Ted Cruz, um, who was a very, uh, you know, he's a very religious right figure in many ways, he won in Iowa. Uh, and Trump still, evangelical leaders, even pretty conservative evangelical leaders, were very, very unhappy with Trump. They were very nervous about him. They didn't see him as a, a God-fearing man. And yet now he has, Trump has completely absorbed the evangelical vote. And in even and even it's even stronger in a way because it's not such a religious phenomenon. It's just something that people spiritually attach to within politics. And Amber, at, at the time of recording, Trump said yesterday, uh, Wednesday, uh, that he now knows who his running mate will be if he gets the nomination. So his, his running mate for, for vice president. Uh, and you, of course, wrote a very good piece also in the magazine this week about the so-called brides of Trump, the that is the the uh, women runners and riders who could be Trump's next vice president. I wonder if you could t- take us through them for our listeners and, and why is it particularly that people think he's going to choose a woman this time around? Sure. So some of the top names include Elise Stefanik, who's currently a member of the House Republican leadership. She was actually elevated to her position as conference chair after Liz Cheney was ousted for not being pro-Trump enough. So it's quite ironic. And Elise Stefanik actually this past weekend appeared on the Sunday shows and was, it seemed, trying to appeal to the former president, talking about the January 6th cold hostages. 
talking about not certifying the election results until she's seen that they're fair in 2024. And she would also help to connect Trump to the moderate wing of the party because she's still very much a part of the political establishment, despite some of her rhetoric. There's also Carrie Lake, who is running for Arizona Senate, had a sort of infamous loss to uh, Katie Hobbs in the Arizona governor race a couple of years ago. She's said to be hanging around Mar-a-Lago and trying to schmooze with some of the guests there to prove that she is the best choice for vice president. But Trump apparently has been very turned off by the fact that she is telling people that she should be the VP. Um, he And it seems that she's maybe got a, a little bit over her skis there. There's Christine Ohm, the South Dakota governor, who's been campaigning with Trump in Iowa because the governor there, Kim Reynolds, has endorsed Ron DeSantis. And Christine Ohm is a pretty safe choice as well. She was one of the governors who very early on was keeping her state open during the COVID pandemic and is generally pretty conservative. But of course, wouldn't be a huge benefit strategically because uh, she doesn't come from a swing state. So that would be uh, one of the downsides for her. And then I would say the final choice potentially would be Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who's the current governor of Arkansas. And of course, she served as press secretary in the White House when Trump was in office his first time around and was seen as a generally very effective communicator. Um, so far, she is pretty well liked in Arkansas and, of course, has the family pedigree of her father serving as governor previously there as well. And Fred, just just finally, I mean, there are potential ways that Trump could be stopped from receiving the Republican nomination. Could you talk a little bit about what those scenarios would be and, and whether you think any of them are, are likely to happen? Well, the, uh, the great imponderable is the sort of morass of legal trials that Trump is going to have to wade through. And nobody knows what's going to happen because although some people like to imagine it's a sort of very sophisticated democratic conspiracy to you know, unseat Trump, it isn't that sophisticated, I think. There's just a sort of splurge of cases and they want to get him on anything they can. What happens if he's found guilty in court to Trump's sort of public polling is a very interesting question. How it affects the, in a in a general in a in a in the presidential election in November is a very interesting question, and it's hard to know the answer. This week, it looks as though his attempt to plead presidential immunity on the January sixth case, which is coming up in March, will fail. It sounds like the judges aren't very convinced by his legal team's arguments that he had presidential immunity in the build-up to January sixth, and so. I mean, it's just very hard to say what's going to happen on the legal side. That is the great mystery of what's going to happen this year. The mystery is not who will be the Republican nominee, because short of a, one of the greatest polling um, errors of all time, uh, Donald Trump is going to be the nominee. So the, the the legal side of things is how he might be stopped, but nobody knows whether it will stop him. And even if he is ordered to go to jail, I, I, don't, I don't know what Amber thinks, but I don't think they'll get him in jail before November, but in theory they could do. And then even if he is in jail, that doesn't necessarily stop him. That's that's how crazy this situation is. Yeah, I think he's exactly right. It's very unlikely that he would be sentenced. And in fact, it's actually quite unlikely that any of these trials, besides maybe the New York civil fraud case, even come to completion before November. And even if they do, there's going to be a long process of appeals. There's already the suggestion that this argument that he's made in, in the D.C. court in terms of presidential immunity could go all the way up to the Supreme Court. And just this week, we heard Governor Sununu of New Hampshire, who has endorsed Nikki Haley, 
saying that he would vote for Trump if he were the nominee, even if he were a convicted felon. So I think that kind of tells you everything you need to know that even a Republican moderate who has endorsed his opponent understands and views these uh, legal challenges as inherently political. Amber and Freddie, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Also this week, the old trope is that there is nothing more X than an ex-Prime Minister. But what about an ex-MP? In the magazine this week, The Spectator's political correspondent James Heal says that Tory MPs expecting to lose their seats at the next election are jumping onto the green gravy train, taking up consultancy positions. He joins us now to discuss, along with Edwina Curry, author, broadcaster and former Tory MP. Uh, so James, we'll start with you since you, it's your very good piece that you've written for the magazine, which is the basis for this discussion. So in your piece, you write that since Labour seems, looking at the polls, are on set for a pretty large victory, we're going to have a lot of former Tory MPs who suddenly end up all scrambling for the same kinds of jobs after office. And you start by saying that Chris Skidmore, using him as an example, that he's in a way done the smart thing by getting to the right kind of jobs first. Now, could you start by telling our listeners what you mean by that and what is particular about his kind of job that other MPs um, will be looking at enviously? Yeah, absolutely. So Chris Skidmore, uh, former interim energy minister when the big uh, net zero 2050 commitment was signed into law under Theresa May in 2019. Last week announced he was going to quit immediately, ostensibly because uh, of the North Sea drilling licensing bill that's coming through Parliament currently. And he's done so in a way that's managed to infuriate all his colleagues because not only does he cause an unnecessary by-election and a seat that's going to be abolished in about eight months' time at the next election, but also he did so by triggering a resignation before he even actually voted against the bill. So they're saying, why on earth would you do that? You didn't even speak out the legislation, etc. But the point is, I think he's indicative of a wider trend, which is that every outgoing, I think, set of MPs often tries to get jobs in the areas they know best. So, for instance, in the 80s, you had a lot of sort of Thatcher-era cabinet members who then subsequently went off and worked in the kind of businesses that were had been privatised under Margaret Thatcher in the 92 and 97 elections. This time, the big shift of this parliament has been green issues and net zero and the explosion of these kind of consultancies and jobs, etc. So Chris Skidmore has managed to get a sort of hat-trick of different jobs. He's got He's wearing multiple hats. He's got the Professor of Climate Research at uh, Bath University. He's also got not one but two £80,000 a year advisory gigs to various sort of eco-friendly consultancies. Um, And I think that there are other examples you can point to. I think a third of all ex-energy ministers since 2010 have gone on to work in the field. And you've also got Alok Sharma, former COP president, who's now earning £1,000 an hour doing speeches on the green circuit. So really, I think this is about people getting out early because they're very wary, of course, that polls point to up to 200 Tory MPs losing their seats. And frankly, it's going to be a bit like a Tory Hunger Games. Mm. Edwina, I would love to get your thoughts on this trend that James identified of Tory MPs such as Mr Skidmore leaving their seats early before the election and the criticism that that they're getting for this. Do you think uh, MPs need to leave with a little bit more grace? Well, I think they should stay on. They got elected and they should stay right to the end. If the uh, the voters decide that they want somebody else, that's a, a different matter. Looking back to 1997, for example, Tony Blair was clearly going to win with a very, very big majority. And that meant that seats like mine were going to fall, uh, you know, like dominoes and that I was going to have to look for something else. But in those days, you could not get any redundancy money unless you actually st- uh, stood in your seat. So I had to do that. 
Uh, what I did do in advance, however, was I booked a facelift, and that's where the redundancy <laughs> money went. Uh, and that was because I was uh, about to go and work for uh, the BBC and do some presenting work on TV, and I had to change from being a rather dull doer backbench MP into being uh, a media star. Yeah. <laughs> and you might you might judge, darlings, that it worked. <laughs> of course. I hope so. Anyway, um, no, but I think if anyone is elected and choose to do, do the job, they, it's an important job. It's a valuable job. It's not measured in how much they're paid. It's measured in how much power you have, how much influence, what responsibility you carry for the for the lives of the people that you're looking after. And it's an honour. Uh, and I think that's how Chris Kidmore should have been thinking about it and not thinking about himself. Well, James, in your piece, you, the kinds of jobs that um, you particularly focus on are, of course, the, as you just mentioned, these kind of green consultancy jobs. And that seems to be the big new opportunity for a lot of former ministers, especially if they've worked even briefly uh, within um, the climate department or energy departments. Do you think it is just a kind of opportunism for, for MPs to make themselves into these green kings of the private sector? Obviously, all MPs trade on what they're good at, their skills, their strengths, uh, their expertise to a certain extent. But what's quite interesting, I think, is that because this is such a new sector over the last sort of four or five years, I mean, traditionally, a lot of energy ministers would go and work for fossil fuels. But now it's obviously all about the green transition. And so you can I think what slightly I wanted to get across in this piece was that sometimes all of this is presented as kind of cost free, etc. Actually, there are trade offs involved in um, going to one net zero. I think there's been an honest debate about that discussion about that. But I think what's telling is that so much of it is about sort of government government incentives in terms of funding etc and that's what I think perhaps there's some um, skepticism about some of these ministers going in is how much do they really know about these areas and obviously they're going to be I'm sure invaluable help in the future in navigating the pitfalls of Whitehall and Westminster. Just to come back on Ezwina's point I mean I'm not sure how many Tory MPs will be getting facelifts this time but a fair number have been what we call presentations so Lee Anderson for instance has a GB News uh, presenting gig. Uh, Deanna Davison was, has done previously for GB News and and talk TV. Others that you spring to mind, Jake Berry's got a similar one. Nadine Dorries, of course, sort of had the protracted resignation, etc. So I do think that perhaps with the explosion of these new post-terrestrial networks or online networks, you're going to see more moving into the field. And I think that's one of the interesting things, although this piece focuses on the green, I think you will also go out the media and the breaking down between politicians and the media in terms of who's on air and who's interviewing what. For instance, last night I was in the GB News green room and I think half the room were Tory MPs. So it's an interesting <laughs> kind of shift in terms of what the skills are. Some, it'll be about their knowledge in government others it'll be about the skills they brought to in the media circuit mm. and we i would love your opinion on this because obviously you've had extremely successful time after office with with broadcasting but james has just identified quite an interesting point i think which is that a lot of mps now are doing these presenting gigs these broadcasting gigs while they are still in office and that line between politician and media personality is getting a bit more blurred, isn't it? Or is it? Or could you make the argument, you know, twas ever thus, and that if you're, you know, if you have a newspaper column while you're an MP, as people, you know, Michael Gove did and Boris Johnson did, that's not really so different as to to, to presenting a TV show on Talk TV or, or GB News every night. Uh, what do you think? I can't be judgmental because I had a newspaper column for some time, and I was, I think, the first MP on Have I Got News for You? Certainly the first Tory MP on that. So I think the point is that actually politics is about words and about argument and about debate. If you care passionately about something or you want to be involved in the debate, 
it is actually just as easy. In fact, it's a lot easier to do that through the media without having to worry about uh, constituents coming with all their grumbles and their problems and their issues. You've got more time to do it, more time to focus on it. And of course, there are a lot more media outlets now with social media uh, as well. So I don't condemn that. I'm not in the least surprised. In fact, if you think about it, an inarticulate MP is not much use to anybody. <laughs> uh, and if you, if you have that articulacy, and then you and you're still interested in politics. You haven't been traumatized by your horrible experience uh, on the front bench or the back bench. Then you're going to want to continue uh, to do that. And given that the world turns and there are always other issues, I've been green since 1983 was when I first had solar panels on my house. I've got my second electric car. I won't mention the make, but it's a very important <laughs> one. It's made in California. It's sitting outside. I'm a green person, but I've never been offered a job in that sort of field. When I left Parliament, I was offered a job as a director of what looked to me like a slightly dodgy pharmaceutical company. And I considered it for about 10 seconds. And then I thought, no, I would much rather be free to have my own opinions. And then God help me, I went to work for the BBC. Yeah. <laughs> well, I suppose, uh, finally, Edwina, uh, you've already uh, given advice to, to MPs, perhaps regarding facelifts, but I wonder if you have any further advice to parting Tory MPs, of which, as James says, there may be a great many after this year's election. And, and what do you think is the right advice for those who f suddenly, perhaps, find themselves in search of new employment? Oh, there's nothing as X as an ex-MP. Uh, they won't all be Tories, of course. I think there'll be a fair number of SMP members or ex-members as well. I think there are two bits of advice. One is, look, do not overestimate your abilities. Be more than happy to go into what amounts to a training role. That's what I did with BBC Radio 5 Live, where basically they paid me to learn how to do uh, three hours at a trot of radio presenting on an international channel. And I'm pleased I was able to do that, really learned how to do it. But the other piece of advice actually is, goes back much earlier. When I speak to students, I often say to them, look, if you're really interested in becoming an MP, please go and do something else for 10 years. If you go and do something, anything, but preferably in the private sector, but you know, business or um, an apprenticeship or train as an accountant or whatever, because politics is such a fickle game that you may well find that you're out without planning to be, in which case having something to fall back on, something that you've done before, is enormously useful. And if you have that knowledge, you may actually be a lot braver when you're an MP because you know that if you lose your seat, you'll be okay. Whereas uh, if you're terrified that you've never done anything else in your life, you might end up just, well, doing what the party leader tells you. And that actually can lead to all sorts of unhappiness and um, hypocrisies. So that would be my pieces of advice. First of all, accept that you probably don't have the skills to survive and get some training to do so. And then preferably make that choice when you're about 20. Edwina and James, thank you very much indeed for joining me. Thank you. And finally, is self-publishing the future for authors? Alison Curvin, author and former sports editor at The Mail on Sunday, makes this point in this week's magazine. In her piece, she praises the financial benefits of self-publishing and argues that it allows writers to overcome some of the problems caused by gatekeepers at the big publishing houses. 
Alison joins us now alongside author and spectator columnist Lionel Shriver. Alison, can you start by telling listeners a little bit about your own experience of traditional publishing and also self-publishing and how they compare? Sure. Yeah, I, I published 12 books uh, through traditional publishers and it, it was all very successful. I don't have an issue with them particularly, but um, I wanted to write, I really had a, I wanted to write an issue, a book with a fat heroine. So I wanted her to be in always sort of following, a, write a normal book with a normal narrative about this woman, but have her overweight because it's such a an issue. And I talked to a friend of mine who's sort of fairly half in publishing and she said, all the ideas I had, all the novels I was going to write sounded great, but you just don't want a fat heroine. And she said, you can be a murderer, you can be a kidnapper, you can be the most awful thing in the world. You just don't want to be fat if you're a heroine. And this kind of set me off and I thought, well, this, that's, this is an absurd situation. So I decided to have a go at self-publishing one to see how it worked. And it was just a bit of fun, really. So I made up a name, Bernice Bloom, which I thought sounded like a fat American. <laughs> and I wrote this book and I touched on all the issues relating to being overweight. And the, and and it was just a phenomenal success. It sold overnight. And I didn't know what I was doing. So I was looking at these figures thinking, well, it seems good. So I did a follow-up book and then just got myself into writing a series of books with this central character, the same, going through all these different adventures. I wrote one called The Mysterious Invitation, which where she gets invited to a funeral and doesn't know the deceased. And when she gets there, no one at the funeral knows the deceased and they have to work out how they know him. So the fact that she's overweight is a, a minor part of this story, but it exists and it's still part, it's still a kind of, a personality issue and that went crazy it said so sold so many so I've almost inadvertently gone down a a self-publishing track with these books and it's it's been fascinating I've now got my own cover designer who used to work for the traditional publishers and I've got uh, my own editor who I work with and it's it's been great and it's what's lovely is you wake up every morning and you can see that 25 copies were sold in Poland and 48 copies were sold on the Isle of Man or whatever and it's there's something very encouraging and you feel much more in touch with your reader when that gate goes down that the publishers provide. And also I think there's an issue with publishers generally are as gatekeepers, they their own personal issues come into play. So it's it's rather like making coffee for Starbucks or something. Starbucks have their set coffees they want to produce. Whereas if you have your own independent cafe, you can make lattes with oat milk and jelly babies if you want. You know, it's it allows you, I think, to do more and to push the boundaries a bit if you want to. But I've just enjoyed the whole process really. Hmm. Well, Lionel, I would love to get your thoughts on Alison's uh, argument there that uh, self-publishing is a way of getting past these gatekeepers, as she describes it. You have uh, often written columns in which you criticise the publishing industry. You d- you've described them in one column as doctrinally uniform and gutless. So uh, could you ever be tempted towards self-publishing like Alison to get past these kind of gatekeepers? I could see it happening. I mean, I'm fortunate to have a publisher that has stuck by me. Uh, even when I have seemingly brought the company into disrepute. Um, (laughs) And I haven't had any experience of their significantly interfering with my work, uh, especially on on a political level. But were I to lose HarperCollins, I don't mind mentioning them by name, then I I I could see considering it. I'm in exactly the position 
where I could probably take advantage of it better than someone just starting from absolute nothing. I've been around a long time. My name is pretty familiar and I could probably transfer my readership via Amazon and possibly possibly make more money. I mean, I, I, I think the real problem with self-publishing is for people who don't have a readership yet and it's hard to build one. There's a lot of competition. And the bottom line is whether you're in traditional publishing or in self-publishing, there are just too many authors for the, for the number of people who are actually reading books. I sometimes suspect that there are more people who want to write than want to read anything. And therefore the competition is, is fierce and it's hard to get yourself noticed. I mean, that that's very much the case. I agree with you entirely in self-publishing particularly because you don't have the shop window. So you're fighting in the darkness with all these other writers stand out somehow. And you have to sort of do all sorts of complicated advertising tricks to kind of get your name out there. And I think for a lot of people that set up in self-publishing, they have a vision of a glorious future living on an island somewhere penning these books. But for a lot of them, they don't sell anything at all. And they sort of waste a lot of time and energy on them. But I think you can, if you get it right, I think you can have a, a lovely career doing it. And there's no, I've been talked to a lot of people have rung me who are very well established traditional authors who want to do a second stream of books under a different name and, and publish them themselves. And so I was sort of advising them how to go about it. So I think increasingly we might move to this hybrid novel where the sort of books that publishers want, you can provide for them, but you might want to have another stream of books that interest you under another name while you self-publish them. I also think that one of the dismal consolations uh, for self-published authors who don't get their work taking off is that that's a very commonplace experience for authors in traditional publishing. I mean, mm. huge numbers of novels are published and and they may be between hardcovers with a you know, a, re a reputable established company, but most of the books that those companies produce lose money, don't get reviewed. And of course, the opportunities for being reviewed beyond uh, the, you know, Goodreads or Amazon have become very, very few. So most authors experience failure. <laughs> and it doesn't really yeah. matter which kind of failure you choose. No, you're right. And when you look at the ones, writers that are published and have careers, and then you look at the sort of figures for the average income for a writer, and it's sort of £10,000 or something. So it's something you can't live on. So a lot of writers are writing for very little money and not achieving the sort of successes that they, even to provide an income for the family. And that's why I always tell aspirant authors that, you should only do it because you enjoy the process. It's fun for you. It's exciting for you. You're, you get to a completed book that you find satisfying, and that has to be enough. You should never go into writing because you want to make your fortune. Alison, I'd love to ask your opinion about self-publishing from the perspective of the reader, or I suppose you might say the consumer. Uh, as opposed to from the perspective of the author. So one of the criticisms that's often leveled against self-publishing is that uh, without publishers, the industry can lose a sense, I suppose, of literary standard. It is, it is undeniable that a lot of stuff that is self-published, because it hasn't gone through an editing 
process in the same way as uh, traditionally published books. You know, a lot of self-published stuff is often thought of to be uh, quite bad. Uh, and, there's, and there's so much of it as well. So it, the, the sort of filtering process is, is taken away. So I wondered what your thoughts were about those kinds of criticisms about self-publishing. I just want to say on Alison's behalf, I noted in her article in The Spectator that she gets copy edited and she has an editor. I think that's vital because an awful lot of self-published authors skip that stuff. And it's important. You need another eye on your work to call attention to inconsistencies or a, a, a copy editor to fix grammatical errors, which are you know, spelling errors even, which are very distracting for a reader and actually make your entire text seem a little iffy. I was very heartened that that Allison included those more traditional elements in her process. Yeah, there are there are a couple of things here. First of all, I think there's the myth that conventional publishers only publish literary fiction. I mean, you look at the list of the published writers and the, the published works, and the top ten will be uh, game show hosts and celebrity models, and you know, it, there isn't. It's all driven by what sells. So I don't think there's necessarily that thing where only the best literary fiction is published by publishers and the rest of it is thrown onto online to be published independently. And also, exactly what Lionel has just said, absolutely, you have to treat it like you would with conventional publishing. And I think the, pr the problem comes when someone who isn't aware of how books are published and doesn't know how the process works, just launches themselves, writes a book, and whatever the literary merits of that book, if it hasn't been edited, it will fall short. I mean, most people can't write an email without an error in it. It's very difficult <laughs> to read your own work and to see the errors. So you absolutely need an editor. I have an editor and then I have a copy editor right at the end. And I'm sure still things get through because it's it's very hard to do. But you have to have the same functions in place that the traditional publishers have. The problem is that when you're first starting out and you don't know what those systems are, it's hard. And also, if your book isn't going to sell anything, it's very difficult to spend thousands of pounds on a, a copywriter and an editor and a cover designer. So those things get done cheaply and it does then diminish the quality of the product you're creating. And just, just finally, in the spirit of encouraging listeners to maybe discover some new self-published authors, are there any authors that you could self-published authors that you might be able to recommend, Alison and Lionel? No. I'm sorry. Before we go, I, I just want to get in one thought, one element of going the traditional route, which experientially I would be sorry to see go, is that process of writing blindly, just putting something together that you hope against hope is, is going to be interesting to other people and trying really hard, maybe writing more than one book, maybe writing a, a dozen books, and finally getting accepted by an established company. That sensation of being given the imprimatur of a larger establishment is, it's exhilarating. And I mean, when, when I finally learned that I sold my first book, I cried. And I, I, I would want that experience for authors coming up behind me. Lionel and Alison, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you. And that's it for this week. 
As ever, if you've enjoyed the podcast, why not pick up a copy of The Spectator magazine to read all the stories in full. Also, a quick announcement before you go. Did you notice any mistakes in this podcast? Any inaccuracies or perhaps even a sloppy editing job? Surely not. But if so, you could be exactly who The Spectator's broadcast team is looking for. We need a new producer to join the team and produce podcasts such as this one and our YouTube shows. To apply, follow the link in the podcast description. I'm William Moore. And I'm Lara Prendergast. And we do hope you'll join us again next week. <laughs>